as you heard, we are in Isaiah. We just started last week. Um, and we have several resources that uh, have been put together. Matt Q put pretty much all of this together, and I just want to highlight these. Uh, we have bookmarks. Uh, if you didn't get one last week, we've got more back at, um, at our Welcome Center. I didn't know until this week that that table back there is called our, our Welcome Center. It's really sweet. You should go check it out. Um, anyway, we have bookmarks back there. It has our reading plan on there so that you can track with us. And I would encourage you um, each week, come having read the passage that we're going to be in. And not even just once, but like multiple times. Uh, and encourage you to read through the passage, uh, dig into it so, uh, so that you'll be ready um, as we go through it uh, on Sundays. Uh, and then there's a different handout um, that, that wasn't here last week. Uh, this one um, is called Reading the Old Testament Prophetic Book. So there's a, another handout about reading Isaiah specifically. This one uh, is talking about all the prophetic books. Really, really helpful. Um, my guess is uh, one thing that would be particularly helpful for you is uh, thinking through how the composition of the, the prof, uh, prophetic books have, have come about. So I'd encourage you to, to get that. Um, and then also, I told you about these last week. These are uh, they're called scripture journals. This is the book of Isaiah. And uh, so we'll have like the, the passage on one side and then, and then uh, a place for notes on the other side. And I jokingly said that um, we beat the cheapest price out there by at least 49 cents. You have to actually buy 50 to get that. That price. So um, it was kind of deceptive. Like we beat most people by, by like five bucks. So um, if you want one, uh, we're just asking for $5 donations. Doesn't, doesn't fully cover what we paid. I wasn't going to grab one because I've never been a journaler. And if, you, uh, if you've been in the church long, I think you kind of feel this pressure, like every Christian should be a good journaler. And I, years ago, I just kind of gave up on that because I stink at journaling. Um, but I, I grabbed one and, and I just started making notes like crazy. And, and I realized I, I feel um, greater freedom to like really mark it up. Um, in my Bible, like I, I want it to look kind of nice, so I, I'm a little more careful with this. I've been drawing symbols and arrows and everything, and, and I've loved it. So um, my, my goal is to just wear these pages out as we go through this book. So I'd encourage you to check that out as well. All right, our truth statement uh, for uh, Isaiah 2 through 5. When man exalts himself... God will surely judge him while keeping his promised hope of restoration for his remnant Zion. I'll read that one more time. When man exalts himself, God will surely judge him while keeping his promised hope of restoration for his remnant Zion. We're going to see throughout this, and actually what I, what I did in, in uh, the scripture journal this week, I, I drew a lot of arrows pointing down when, when, when man was going to be humbled. And every time it talked about God being exalted, I, I drew an arrow pointing up. We're going to see that that, that, that with the exaltation of man, there is judgment that comes. And yet throughout this whole book, we're, we're looking for, okay, God has promised that he's going to restore, right? Through this judgment, he will restore. There will be a remnant that he saves in Zion. So let's jump in, 2-1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. You might remember back from chapter 1, there, there was this, uh, this phrase about the, the city. It was called the faithful city. But the, the faithful city, the, the once faithful city, had fallen. But we, we begin here in 2-2 with a picture of what that faithful city will be like when God restores her. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And let's just pause there, okay? So the nations are gonna come and it says, let us, let us go. What are they going for? They're going to, to the Lord to be taught by him, right? They, they wanna learn his ways. And look at the result. The result is that they may walk in his paths. If we don't come, if we won't come to God, we will not learn to walk as he has created us to in this life. We need to get over our self-sufficient ways and humbly come before the Lord, recognizing that he is the one that shows us and gives us life. He shows us how we are to live. So the purpose of our learning is, is living, that we come to him because he's the one who gives life. There's no life apart from him. It goes on. It says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, right? These weapons of war being transformed. Uh, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is such a shift from chapter one. In chapter one, there was the the poem in 21 through 26 that was bookend. It was framed by by the phrase faithful city. There was was this faithful city, but then you remember in chapter one, right away, he calls that faithful city, he he calls him a prostitute, right? But there's hope still. There's hope that this once faithful city will be restored by God. And, And now in the beginning of two, we have a vision of what this city will be like, this, this recreated, this renewed city, the vision of Israel's destiny as this uh, lighthouse to the nations. The nations will come, right? And, and they, will, they will come to learn truth and peace, to, to know God. Now, this doesn't describe how they are at the moment. Instead, it describes what they will be. This is the ideal that God will accomplish and you wonder in chapter one and, and really many, many places, including where we are this week, you wonder how Israel will become what God lays out here at the beginning of chapter two. Verse five says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So there's a call to Israel to come to God, to walk in his ways. Right? And, and notice he says walk, just like he said in, in verse 3 about the nations, right? the, the Gentiles, the people that did not know God. They're going to they're gonna come. They're going to walk in his ways. If the Gentiles are going to come to God and, and worship him and learn, uh, learn from him, know him and walk in his ways, should not Israel, God's chosen people, do the same? And many commentators write that this is to stir up a holy jealousy uh, among God's people to, to come back to the Lord. And this is what the prophets do. They call for God's people to return to faithful obedience to the Lord. Stop rebelling against God. Stop sinning. Turn to him. Learn his ways. Walk in the way of the Lord. And as, as readers, we, we feel this call. Uh, to God's people to walk in the light of the Lord like the nations will. Let's go to God that he may teach us. 
And again, the result of the teaching, uh, of this learning, is that we walk in his way. So the, the reason I'm telling you to like grab one of these and, and, and read through this book a lot, the reason we're, we're doing uh, the Knowing God book on Sunday nights, the reason you listen to, to podcasts, to sermons about, about scripture, about theology, doctrine, faith, is, is so that we can live for God, to live in the light of the Lord. But Israel wasn't living God's ways. Israel, they're the oppressors. They were the ones who were unjust. They mistreated people. They abused people. They took advantage of others uh, for their own sake. They were as bad as the nations. God's people certainly should be different. And in 2.6 through 4.1, Isaiah um, depicts the foolishness of humanity, trying to exalt itself and ignoring the exalted one. 2.6 through 11, uh, we see that, that Israel is full. I think we have a slide with 2, 6 through 11. Uh, Israel is, is full of, of all these different things. Maybe we don't have it. it it's full of all these, these things from the east. They're filled with silver and gold. Their, their land is filled with, with horses. Their land's filled with idols, it says. Um, and then in verse, verse 9, it says, So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And he says, Do not forgive them. Right? They're full, but, but somehow they're empty. Externally, Israel looked good. Right? They'd filled up on what the world had to offer. They're full of all kinds of attractive, worldly uh, items. Right? They, had, they had wealth. They had military power. They had things from, from other nations. They had idols from other nations. Uh, they, had, they had magic from other nations. Israel had, had, had already been warned about this. Right? That, that their kings were not to, uh, not to take from the other nations, not to accumulate money and military power, because what would happen is that they, they would turn from God and they would put their trust in the world. They would put their trust in, in these false gods. Right? And this is what happened with Solomon. Right? The desire to have what the world has leads us to worshiping the fake gods of this world. We can fill up on everything this world has to offer and yet be totally empty. And you know what I'm talking about, right? We, we have those moments of clarity where, where we realize, man, these things I've been chasing, right? All these false promises of the world leave me empty. Sometimes they, they leave me feeling more empty than I did before I even chased them. Right? We, we can, we can uh, achieve all these things that we think will satisfy us, right? To, to look this way, to have this lifestyle, right? To be in, in this relationship or to get married or, or buy these possessions, right? We can get all of those things and still not feel what we had hoped for. We can fill up on everything that, that promises life and, and be totally empty because those things were never made to satisfy and fulfill us. Only God can do that. Knowing God and being known by him is what we were made for. We were made for this covenant relationship that we read about through scripture. But Israel's broken the covenant. At the beginning of chapter two, the the nations came to learn from God. And then in this section, it's the house of Jacob that's, that's going to the nations, not to tell them about the Lord, but to adopt their ways. Verses one through five, the nations come to learn God's ways to worship him, but, but his people and they worship what they've made with their own hands. In the previous section, they turn their weapons into tools for the harvest. And in this section, they're amassing weapons of war. In the first section, there's peace under the rule of God. But here, violence is just waiting. 
We read the ideal of what Israel will be. And now here we read the reality of what they are with the clear message that they cannot expect that future if they continue to live in sin. The hope of 2, 1 through 5 should motivate them to honestly deal with their, their present chosen reality. And if they don't, if they don't choose to change their ways, which they didn't, then their restoration can only come through humiliation and destruction of their false hopes. You notice at the end of verse 9, he, he says, do not forgive them. Right? Israel is full of itself. It's full of the ways of the nations around them. Their sin is great. And the prophet cries out, do not forgive them. Let's just imagine for a moment that someone after the service comes up uh, to talk to me and they confess this struggle. And I say, ah, can I pray for you? And that's what I pretty much always say. And I begin to pray. And, and I pray about what, what a big deal this is, that, that this is an offense to God, and then I pray, do not forgive them. How, how shocking would that be? Isaiah's words here expose the problem of our sin. Our sin is no little issue. Our sin is rebellion against our creator, and our sin necessitates judgment. God cannot look the other way and pretend that nothing has happened. How can he punish sin and yet restore Israel? How can God fulfill his covenant promise to Israel in the face of our sin. They'll be humbled. The, the proud will be brought low, and this process of humbling will be scary. Verse 10 says things like, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, right? The, the arrogant looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, right? The, the lofty will be brought down. Verses 12 through 16, uh, we have a slide here and, and you'll notice against, against, against. And, and this is what he's against. He's against everything that's lifted up Right? The descriptions of these, these giant trees, these lofty mountains, these uplifted hills, high towers, fortified walls, these giant ships that they've built. Right? This is what he's against. The previous sections, they're full, 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 and now God's hand is against, against, against. And all of these things, the trees, the walls, the, the mountains, they represent human pride and arrogance and everything that's high and proud will be brought low. And, and maybe this flashes you back in Genesis, the Tower of Babel, right? Man creates what, what looks great to man out of its pride, and God humbles humanity and their plans with ease. Verse 17, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God is the one who should be exalted. God is the one who will be exalted. And when anyone tries to elevate themselves above God, they're in for a rude awakening. And you may notice that phrase, in that day. This is, this is a phrase we see uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, it's, it's referring to the day of the Lord, and we see it in, in some different ways. But the day of the Lord is it's both a, a time of destruction and terror, and it's a time of salvation and blessing. But only after the, the destruction and the terror comes the blessing. 
And again, judgment and salvation are hand in hand with each other. The Israelites needed to understand that just because they are God's people, it didn't mean it didn't mean that they could just do whatever they wanted. They could live however they wanted to. Blessing did result from election, but only when that election was confirmed by humble, righteous living. We're going to read a lot about God's judgment, and God's judgment is perfect. I love um, in Revelation, and there's, there's a ton of connections that we'll see in, in Isaiah and Revelation, but Revelation 19.1, this multitude cries out from heaven, and, and when they see the judgment of God, and they say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And I can't remember when it was, sometime in the last couple of years, I read that, and it, and it struck me that that is how I will respond in, in seeing the judgment of God. And it helps me realize that there's a disconnect between, between how I will respond and how, um, how I feel now about judgment. Um, it, this tells me that, 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 that there's a, a truth about the goodness of God's judgment that, that I, I'm beginning to understand that intellectually, but, but it's still, it, I still don't fully understand. I know as, as a believer, um, I know that Christ took on the wrath of God on the cross, right? And, and even so, there's, there's this, this, this level of, uh, of fear. And, and I read this in Revelation, and I see that, that we will marvel how good God's judgment is, how true and just his judgments are, that there'll be shouts of hallelujah when it's witnessed by his people. In Isaiah, we're seeing the same thing, like how good God's judgment is. The, the, the judgment God is bringing is true, it's just. It is from the judgments that will come the restoration of God's people. God's judgment is not disconnected from his covenantal love for his people. So here we see this against, 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 and the imagery is, it's like a windstorm or an earthquake that's just gonna knock down trees, mountains. It's gonna level walls. The day of the Lord will bring destruction to human pride. Man will be brought low. God will be the only one exalted. Way later in Isaiah, uh, chapter 57, verse 15, it says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Human exaltation comes, and this is counterintuitive, but it comes by exalting God. It is a humbling of ourselves and a lifting up and exalting of him that results in our being lifted up. Or to put it negatively, when we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. And as Scott read in, at the end of chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And I think if I was writing this verse, trying to communicate something here, I would have said something about stop regarding idols. But Isaiah doesn't say that, right? He says, be done with, with man. Stop exalting man. Idolatry is the result of man's exaltation, right? We are the issue here. We are the problem. Our tendency is to make ourselves the center of the universe, or at least the center of our little tiny part of the universe. And the truth is, you aren't even close to the center. And to be clear, neither am I, right? We're mortals. Our life 
it's described in scripture like a vapor, right? That here you are one moment and the next you're gone. If you were with us back in Ecclesiastes maybe a couple years ago, we remember this, this reality that we're, we're all just a few generations away from no one remembering us. Right? My oldest kids barely have memories of, of one of my grandparents, their great-grandparents. It's humbling. 3-1 through 4-1 describes the humbling that will come that God will strip away the, uh, the ruling class of Jerusalem society, right? The, the military, judicial, religious leaders. He, he says things in that chapter, and we just don't have time to get into everything, but he says things like, like infants will lead them. There, there's this one verse that, that talks about a, a man coming to his brother and saying, hey, you've got a cloak, be our leader, right? Be afraid when leaders are picked with, by that standard. All of this will come about because Israel's words and actions are totally against God. They've defied the Lord. He is the great one, and yet they act as if he doesn't even exist. They have no regard for him. It says they flaunt their sin like Sodom. Right? They're not even trying to hide their sinful behavior, and, and, and then these woes come. And, and I don't think that the more I read about the, the, this word woe here, I don't think we really grasp how strong this warning is, right? It's like saying, be careful, right? You do not understand what it's going to mean for you if you keep going down this road. Woe to you, right? Keep living this way and, and you, are, you will be judged. You're opposing God. His hand will be against you and you will not come out victorious. And we'll see all these woes here and the feeling of all of chapter 3 up to verse 1 of chapter 4 is that of despair as Israel just refuses to turn from sin and turn to God. And then 4-2 comes. It says, in that day. So again, here's that, that phrase, right? Referring to the day of the Lord, both, both the day of destruction and terror as well as blessing and restoration. Here we're going to read about the latter. In that day, the branch of the Lord, right, the Messiah, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Right, This, this little remnant of Israel, of God's people. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and, and uh, by a burning or a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There'll be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And finally, this feels like what we started with in 2, 1 through, through 4. The judgment of his people will result in a cleansing, right? I'm going to wash you of all your filth. I'm going I'm to cleanse you. I'm going to restore you. There'll be this righteous remnant of those who trust in God, of those whom God has given life to through his son. God will do what he has promised to do from the beginning. Even though it looks bleak, he will save his people. All who trust in him will be saved. We can trust that, that he will make all things new. 
And my guess is the imagery when we read there about the, the cloud, the smoke, the fire that probably takes us uh, uh, early into the Old Testament. We think about the, the pillar of cloud that led Israel by day, the pillar of fire that led Israel by night. Maybe we think of the, the cloud descending on the tabernacle, the, the temple filling with smoke as the glory of God's presence is there. And now Isaiah sees a day when God will provide this canopy of uh, the smoke, this fire, this cloud to protect the people that he has saved. Now chapter five moves into a song and it's, it's gonna get rough again. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, right? He chose, he, he chose a, a good plot of land with, with good, fertile soil. He, he cleared it of rocks. He, he, he dug into it. He planted it with choice vines, right? Good, good vines. He built even a watchtower in the midst of it. And he waited for, for the grapes that were to come from this choice vine. And yet wild grapes came, not what he had prepared for. 5.3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, right? Maybe last week you remember the, the courtroom setting again. We see that judge between God and his vineyard, judge between God and his people. In verse four, he says, what more was there for, uh, to do for my vineyard that I have not done? Right? What, what more should God have done? It says, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I'll tell you, the fault isn't with God. He's given them everything that they need. They've chosen sin over and over again. And I wish that we could not relate to that. How do I choose sin? How do we choose sin when we know better? It's one thing before Jesus to choose sin. When you don't know, when you haven't tasted and seen, but when you have, you'd think you would stop. But like Israel, we're so quick to forget how good God is. Like Israel, we're just as capable of, of not just dipping our toes into sin, but diving in head first. Verse five, it says, now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its, its hedge, right? I'm gonna remove its protection. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. Verse seven, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Verse 13, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Verse 13, he's sending his people into exile for their lack of knowledge. They do not know God and his ways. And it isn't like he hasn't given them opportunity after opportunity to come to him. And then verse 14, we're gonna hear a description of Sheol. And, and Sheol is probably, maybe it's one of those words that you've read in the Old Testament, but you kind of forget 
um, w- what it means. There, there's, there, there's much to say, but the Old Testament describes it as this intermediate state where the dead go before judgment, right? Before, before the righteous to, to eternity with God, before the unrighteous are, are damned. And, and there's way, way more that can be said. I may, I may have just confused you more now, actually, than before. Um, I'll link an article to this, uh, to this sermon uh, that, that talks about the Old Testament use of Sheol that I think will be helpful. But it says this, uh, Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite, Right? It's, it's opened its mouth beyond measure. It makes me think of uh, like uh, those, those shows of like predators or like where a snake dislocates its jaw so that it can open its mouth as big as possible. It says, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted injustice the holy god shows himself holy in righteousness and she all opens its mouth beyond measure it's its appetite's been enlarged right that's not what you want to hear after being confronted with your rebellion against the holy one and once again the reality is man is humbled and god is the one whom is exalted Human greatness, uh, Oswald says, uh, cannot exist until God's greatness shines over humanity. Until that happens, humanity's potential is zero. Is God exalted in your heart, in your mind, in your actions, or are you? If someone came and, and did an audit of your life, who would they conclude is exalted? In, in how you live and how you think and what you believe and how you interact with, with others. Well, the woes continue. I won't go through all of them. Verse 20, though, it says this. It says, Woe to those who call, good, who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There are lots of ideas and philosophies that, that the world holds up and says, look at this, right? This is good, even though God says this is evil. And this is not a new thing, right? This has always been going on. And, and we feel immense pressure to call what God has said is sin, what he's called evil, to call it good. And, and to call what God has said good, to call that evil. Beware of going against what God has judged as good or evil, Trust me, you would rather have society call you names and pressure you than find yourself in opposition to God. Right? It is easy right now for us to fear what people will say or do. And that is an exaltation of man, not of God. We must lovingly speak truth, calling what God has called good, good, and what he has called evil, evil. So chapter five ends in this way. Verse 26, it says, he will raise a signal for the nations, right? He'll he'll signal them. He'll whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, they're, they're coming quick, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. They're ready, 
right? Not, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their arrows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, their heels like the whirlwind. They're roaring, it's like a lion. Like young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Right? Not a fun way to end. Isaiah doesn't name the Assyrians here, but we know that's, that's who came, that's who God used to exile his people. And he did what he promised he would do, right? that they would be judged if they continued in their sin all the while inviting them, come, come to me, house of Jacob, walk in my ways. God is so gracious. He calls us to himself, right? He invites you, he invites me to leave our sin that, that we're so enthralled by and come to him so that we can have true fullness of life through Jesus, that, that we can know peace because we are at peace with our Lord rather than have his hand against us because of our misplaced worship of the creation rather than the creator. Thanks be to God for this book of Isaiah that we get this front row seat to see the exalted one, to see his goodness and to see the foolishness and where this foolishness leads when we reject him and pursue sin. We're going to hear over and over again this call, return to God, walk in his ways, humble ourselves by exalting the Holy One. And we're going to watch throughout this book as God will deal with sin by judging. And yet it's through that judgment that he will save them. I'm so excited for the, I think we got 22 weeks total that we're going to be going through this book. So I'd encourage you each week, man, figure out where we are next week. We're in, we're in Isaiah 6. Man, read it over and over again. Let's, let's come ready. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, we, we thank you for your word, God. Um, I know if people are like me, sometimes the prophets are confusing because it just feels like, like we're all over the place. And, and yet I think that when we dig in, we can see... Um, how, uh, how masterfully you've put this together. We, we, we can feel the, the emotions that we're supposed to feel, the highs and lows in, in this book as, as we, we see what you've promised you will do. And, and then we also see, um, man, we, we see the, the, the judgment that you've promised when we pursue sin. Lord, we thank you that, that you are God that restores, that, that you, will, you will make it even better than it was originally, God. God, I pray that we would be a people that know you and love you. I pray that we would not lack knowledge of you, that we would, we would know you and be known by you, that we would live lives uh, humbly before you, always pointing to you, the exalted one. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.